Super Bowl one, final Packer offensive lineman announced during pregame introductions was who? Jerry Kramer. No, it's not Jerry Kramer. It is not Fuzzy Thurston. It is not Gail Gillingham. It is not Fuzzy Zeller. It is not Jim Ringo. What there? It is not. No, it's, it's not Bill Curry. Who is the god offensive lineman who was announced lastly in that stupid, asinine, crappy, garbage, terrible production game by NFL Never. Who is the offensive lineman? God this is Jerry Kramer, and you're listening to The Bridge. Get after it, Johnny. Shut up and sit down. Listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. Here's your host, John Lund. Hello, everyone. You're listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. I'm your host, John Lund, the multimedia sports enthusiast, bringing you this sports show. Well, after week two of the NFL, we have a better idea of what teams might do well and which ones might stink. We'll talk about that and whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve on episode 84 of The Bridge. Greetings and salutations, everyone. Welcome back to another installment of The Bridge, coming to you live on Sports Radio America every Wednesday night, 7 to 8 p.m. Eastern Time, to bring you the best and brightest of the sports world. That's right, The Bridge is live on Sports Radio America every Wednesday night, though the show is technically pre-recorded. If you do miss the live show, you can always catch the podcast version of The Bridge, which is available 24 hours after the initial broadcast, which means you can find the newest episode and additional content from the show on Thursday nights. On iTunes, under The Bridge Sports Podcast, or on my website at londonbridge.com. I'll save all the ways you can listen to The Bridge and where you can find the show until the end of this latest installment. If anything, you can call in or text in to the show 24-7 at 929-BRIDGE-7. That's 929-274-3437. Whether you're listening live or listening to the podcast, contact the show with your questions, comments, stories, or hot takes, and you'll be featured in the next installment of The Bridge. All right, let's get into the fun stuff. Give me the siren. Kevin Durant's journey from America's darling to America's villain is worthy of the next Marvel comic book and one of the quicker falls from the graces in the eyes of fans that we've seen in sports. KD was ripped for leaving the Thunder for the team that he couldn't beat in the Golden State Warriors, but winning an NBA championship and the finals MVP should have left him satisfied. Instead, we found out that there's still quite a bit of salt left in those wounds. It's time for the number one news anchor parody segment in sports radio. Here's this week's edition of Sports News Red Like Real News.
Kevin Durant was beloved by Oklahoma City Thunder fans and well-liked by NBA fans in general after his rise as the next superstar of the league. But all that changed before the start of last season, when Kevin Durant made the decision to leave Oklahoma City in favor of the Golden State Warriors, the team he was unable to beat in the playoffs the year before. The media crushed him, fans turned their backs on him, and Durant was left feeling alone, doubting himself for leaving and becoming the new villain of the league. One would think finals MVP would wash all those feelings away, but KD has long been thin-skinned and quick to the defensive, often critical of the media for being critical of him, and ready to pick a random social media fight with one of his close to 17 million followers on Twitter if he deems they're chirping too loud. We've come to expect and accept KD's defensiveness, but no one could have expected how deep it goes. Twitter was buzzing late Sunday night when it was discovered that Durant's account had replied back to a somewhat critical tweet, which wouldn't have been a surprise if the tweet wasn't written in the third person. The statement that started it all was innocent enough, as one NBA fan tweeted to Durant, quote, Man, I respect the hell out of you but give me one legitimate reason for leaving OKC other than getting a championship. Two replies soon followed from the account of one Kevin Durant, saying, quote, He didn't like the organization or playing for Billy Donovan. His roster wasn't that good. It was just him and Russ. And imagine taking Russ off that team. See how bad they were. KD can't win a championship with those cats. Did Durant's social media intern forget to switch accounts? Was he hacked? Did he have burner accounts to further fuel his obsession with responding to the haters? The tweets were soon deleted and no one would know of the truth until Durant responded. However, the internet quickly got wind of the responses and set to work on getting the truth. The verdict? Not only did it appear to be KD's responses on his Twitter account, he also had a private Instagram account used to counterattack the trolls. NBA Reddit unearthed the username Choir Sultan, which Kevin Durant's brother had once used to tag him in a picture. Though the account on Instagram was private, several NBA players followed it, including Draymond Green. And the profile picture was also from Goodfellas, which KD has said to be his favorite movie. All potential coincidences, except the username Choir Sultan is a combination of Choir Avenue and Sultan Avenue both streets in Durant's hometown of Capitol Heights, Maryland. And while it's no crime and quite common for celebrities and athletes to have their own private accounts, this one also featured a long-discovered history of comment beef with haters, with language not quite suitable for this show. 
Shortly after the discovery, the account profile picture was deleted, and the username changed to Shanghai Noon 12345. All signs correctly pointed to both accounts belonging to Durant, who issued an apology for his commentaries on Tuesday, saying he went a little too far. Quote, I don't regret clapping back at anybody or talking to my fans on Twitter. I do regret using my former coach's name and the former organization I played for. That was childish. That was idiotic. All those types of words. I regret doing that, and I apologize to them for doing that. End quote. KD's former teammate, Ennis Cantor, did some clapping back of his own in response to the Durant comments, tweeting out, quote, I don't care what anyone says. Oklahoma City Thunder is the best and most professional organization in the NBA and got the craziest fans. We win, we lose, but the most important thing is we stick together because we are one. And those cats, I call them family, end quote. The main story here isn't about an athlete putting detractors in their place, but how seemingly insecure Kevin Durant still is of being accepted and loved. Despite all the money and now all the winning, it seems to be a little bit lonely at the top. Though the critics have been more right than wrong, And Durant could have won with those cats if he didn't turn into a ghost in Game 6 of the Western Conference Finals against the Warriors. He's certainly done more than enough in his career that outside noises shouldn't bother him. Although it's a breath of fresh air that an athlete like Durant is willing to be so open with his thoughts to haters and fans... His personal validation shouldn't have to come from randoms on the internet. Or perhaps instead be more positive with future third-person remarks. Much like Skip Bayless once was, in saying that he was the man, loved the new show on FS1. I'm John Lund, for Sports News, read like real news. Let's take a quick break to get mad on the internet. When we come back, we'll talk to an NFL writer about all the main storylines in the National Football League from week two and some things to look out for down the road as well. We'll be right back on the bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. As you heard earlier in the show, you can call in or text in to the bridge at 929-BRIDGE-7. That's 929-274-3437. Leave a voicemail or text your questions, comments, stories, or hot takes, and you'll be featured in the next installment of The Bridge. Now we do like to pose a question each show to help give you the urge to call in or text in to The Bridge. This week, we want to know... What was your main takeaway from week two of the NFL and why? Speaking of the NFL, now that the season is in full swing, that also brings with it another wondrous edition of, wait, who? A segment dedicated to giving some lesser known players or coaches their just due. 
The Pittsburgh Steelers made the cut last year with the emergence of Jesse James at tight end and wasted little time getting a player back on this list. Without further ado, here's this week's edition of Wait, Who? The Pittsburgh Steelers arguably have the best wide receiver and running back in the league on their squad, but other role players still need to step up to bring the team success. When Ben Roethlisberger threw a touchdown pass early in the second quarter to give the Steelers a 21-0 lead over the Minnesota Vikings on Sunday, not only was his wide receiver catching his first career pass in the NFL, but was also seemingly nicknamed after a movie theater candy. Some popcorn. Maybe some jujubes. A slushy. Snowcaps, perhaps. Maybe some snowcaps, I don't know. Enter, Juju Smith-Schuster. Wait, who? Juju Smith-Schuster, the pride of Long Beach Polytechnic High School in Long Beach, California was a five-star recruit in high school and ranked as the second-best safety in his class. He headed to USC to play for then-head coach Steve Sarkeesian as a wide receiver and immediately had an impact as a true freshman in 2014, reeling in four catches for 123 yards in his first game. Smith-Schuster had a career-high 1,454 receiving yards and 10 touchdowns as a sophomore and followed with 10 more touchdowns as a junior before deciding to forego his senior year and enter the 2017 NFL Draft. The Dallas Cowboys were the only team to hold a private workout with him before the draft even though Juju was ranked the fourth-best wide receiver in the draft by Sports Illustrated and ESPN. He was drafted by the Pittsburgh Steelers in the second round and signed to a four-year, $4.19 million contract. The big question leading into his rookie season was of course, how man named John got the nickname, Juju. He told the story, saying quote, it went from John, to Jojo. Then it went from choo-choo, like a train, and then Juju stud. That's been his name ever since. Juju didn't do anything in the season opener, but certainly had an impact in week two. He showed off his blocking ability on running plays, then scored his first career touchdown on a four-yard shovel pass from Big Ben in the second quarter. His touchdown celebration game was also on point as he orchestrated a casino night theme, for after he scored. Juju called over some teammates, then dropped to one knee and pretended to roll dice. While group celebrations are now allowed in the National Football League, gambling is still poo-pooed. The NFL League office reviewed the celebration, couldn't decide if the players were referring to Yahtzee or backgammon, and deemed the actions okay and no fault of Juju for working on his form of tossing dice, since gambling is one of the only adult things he can do with his team right now. Smith-Schuster, can't have a legal drink with the boys until he turns 21 in November. Who can make the NFL have to address possible gambling references after scoring his first touchdown? Juju Smith-Schuster, that's who.
Now to this week's guest in Frank Schwab, an NFL writer and editor for Shutdown Corner on Yahoo Sports. He joined us last year to chat about his writing career and the goings-on in the National Football League at that time, and you can check that out in episode 45 of The Bridge. Frank is now back to help break down the main storylines from week two, chat about some surprises and disappointments so far, and some things to look forward to for the rest of the season. You can follow Frank on Twitter. He's at Yahoo Schwab. That's Y-A-H-O-O-S-C-H-W-A-B. And without further ado, let's get into that interview. We're here with Frank Schwab. He's an NFL writer and editor for Shutdown Corner on Yahoo Sports and friend of the show. Frank, thanks for coming back on. How you been? Hey, pretty good. Pretty good. Just trying to figure out all this uh, NFL madness this season. Yeah, it has been madness in the first couple weeks, to say the least. Some teams have been playing well. Others have disappointed. And we'll get to hit on all of that, of course, as we go along here. In typical fashion, at least in more recent years, and something we hit on when we spoke last year, there's been writings and comments and ratings about drop in viewership of the NFL, uh, something that people seem to go to now quite quickly if things don't look great as far as ratings go or games aren't going well. Is there any cause for concern one year later in that regard? I mean, it's not good that ratings are, are falling again, but I've always said this, that, you know, when the when college football, when the NBA, when Major League Baseball comes close to the NFL in ratings, I think that's when the NFL's worry. I mean, the NFL still, they, people, you know, tried to throw out this narrative about, hey, college football ratings are rising and the NFLs are falling. Well, let's go back and look at that, because in week one, the Cowboys and Giants did 24 million viewers. And in week, if that week was week two of college football, their marquee game was Ohio State and Oklahoma. That did 8 million. So the, the NFL is still doing three times more viewership than college football's best game. And I think every other college football game, uh, the only other one that reached more than 4 million, there's one other one that reached like six. So you're, you're talking about the NFL is just crushing everybody still. The, NFL, the problem with the NFL in this narrative is the NFL sets such a ridiculously high bar that there was nowhere to go with that. You can't, you, you can't just keep this ratings going year after year after year, especially when you know the, the way people watch is different. The market's a lot more fractured. You know, people aren't. It's 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 just you know it's got it had to come down a bit. And even you know the people at Fox, one of their PR guys, pointed out. If just as many people are watching, or even more, I think it's been an increase. They're just not watching for as long, which makes sense given you know, I mean, changes in society and whatnot. And also, the games just have been blowouts, and that's just circumstantial. That's not something systemic. That's nothing the, the NFL can do anything about blowouts. I mean, they, you know, when the Packers play the Falcons and the Falcons win big, they what can they do? They're both good teams. Just one happened to play better, so. You know, I mean, for all the the angst about NFL ratings and all this, and I, I just think it's so overblown because a it's 2017 and people like to complain about things. That's just the way it is. And b it's it's just everybody wants to take a shot at the NFL because it's on top, 
everybody wants to, to knock the king off its throne. So we hear all these, these you know, everybody's up in arms about ratings and this and that win. In, in reality, I don't see there being a huge concern. Although I'm sure in the NFL offices, they're, they're putting their heads together and saying, why are ratings going down and not up? We're, we're trying to build our, our, our company and not lose money on this. So it, it's a complicated issue, but ultimately I think it's a very overblown issue. Right, and it hasn't helped very much that we've seen 13 or so games to this point feature team scores of 10 points or fewer. That's really not going to draw people to watch those games if the offensives haven't been clicking yet. But that's something that hopefully will improve as the season goes on and teams get more used to each other. Working back from Monday with some of the main storylines we were able to see from over the weekend, the most recent one from this past Monday night wasn't the Lions starting the season at 2-0, and but the Giants starting at 0-2 and the drama that has come from that. We've had Ben McAdoo throw Eli Manning under the bus in the postgame press conference for, quote, sloppy quarterback play. We saw that no miracles were performed to fix the offensive line for that game, and things only seem to be getting worse if more losses are to come. Is there a saving grace that can fix the Giants, or is this going to be a long season in New York slash New Jersey? I, you know, I, I think that the Giants are – there's some things they got to fix. Let's put it that way. But I – I mean, the freakouts you saw on social media and whatnot. I mean, people comparing the Giants to the Jets and, you know, hey, are they, they're going to be drafting one, two. Like, let's slow down a little bit. <laughs> I mean, yes, the Giants have looked bad in two games. They still have an outstanding defense. They're still trying to get Odell Beckham back close to 100%. I don't think this is a 4-12 and football team by any means. I think this team, they're going to win games. They, they have a very good defense. But the problem is you dig yourself a hole. You're you're own two already in the history of own two teams making the class isn't great. Now you go to Philly. That's a tough game uh, against uh, an Eagles team that's played really well so far this season. So you get it's such a hole that it's tough to dig out of. But I don't I don't think this Giants team's terrible. I don't think they're gonna you know be drafting Sam Darnold next April. It's just they're not gonna crater that badly. But is what happens early in the year. We see two games and we freak out. Like everybody, you know, everybody wants to make sweeping generalizations based on you know 120 minutes of football when that's really that's not really fair to anybody. I think the Giants are going to be okay, but there's obviously there's issues. Their line can't block. They can't run the ball again. But Ben McAdoo seems to be in over his head in many ways. So I think the Giants are. Let's say they're in a little trouble. There's no doubt about that. But they're not. I, I just can't see them being one of the worst teams of football. You did write about the mistakes the Giants may have made in hiring McAdoo as the head coach, and the situation has definitely been a head-scratcher, to say the least, considering McAdoo helped Eli have two of his best seasons, really a quarterback when he was their offensive coordinator. I don't know if we can chalk that up to how horrible their offense has been because Maybe they spent too much money on the defense. Maybe he's having a Chip Kelly-esque syndrome where he can't handle two jobs at once. But to your point where he potentially could be on the hot seat or already is, is there a bar McAdoo has to meet for this season to not get fired after it or even during it? I don't think so. I mean, it's it's hard to say now. I mean, if they go, if they do go forward, well, yeah, I mean, that that's a bar. He's probably, he's got to cross over that to keep his job. 
I do think it's just I look. It's a totally different job. It's the offensive coordinator and head coach is a it's a seismic shift, and it's funny. I mean, that's how the NFL hires its coaches is they look for the hot coordinator, hire the hot coordinator, and they put them in a totally different job. And a lot of coaches give up play calling because they find it just too much. I mean, the guys who can do it both are hey, great for them, but it's a totally it's a, it's a totally different challenge. It, you know, like uh, the, the example I've used is last year, if Ben, ben McAdoo would have been in his office devising game plans, but instead he was out in front of the media answering questions about Josh Brown. I mean, he doesn't have to do that as offensive coordinator. You have to deal with a lot of different things as head coach that you just don't have to deal with. And, you know, their, their play calling, you can look at I mean, people have done uh, many articles about the Giants' formations and how they're basically the most predictable team in the league. They use the same formation over and over and over. 13 personnel, the three, uh, or, you know, uh, 11 personnel, three receivers on like 91% of their plays or something like that. There's just not a lot of creativity there. there you, you know, you lose, you could just get sloppy with details, I think. Like there was one play where, you know, Zicky Ops already had two sacks, and then Eric Flowers somehow is, is singled up with no help against Onsen and has to get the third sack. I mean, does... Does McAdoo, uh, you know, at least uh, is he thinking about, hey, I need to give some help to my left tackle if he's not the head coach and having to deal with everything else that night? <laughs> you know, I mean, maybe you, these details can slip through you a little bit. Or even when they took the delay of game, I know you blamed it on Eli, but maybe the play call comes in a little quicker if if one guy's not making the decision to go for it and then calling the play. So I, I just think that it's it's he he was a very very good offensive coordinator, and I just think he's overwhelmed by both jobs because. Most people are overwhelmed by both jobs, and it's, I think it's one reason why you look around the league and you see guys like Mike Tomlin, John Harbaugh. These guys weren't primarily play callers, and they're not play callers now, but they're very, very good head coaches because they understand that both jobs are tough, and, and they're just better off in a delegation role and, and leading a team. I think there's, there's something to be said about that. Sticking with the NFC East and with drama as well, the Dallas Cowboys were handled on both sides by the Denver Broncos, and the main contributor to the storyline of that game was what Ezekiel Elliott did, or what I should say he didn't do. He was held to just eight yards, was seen making no effort at all to try and stop a Broncos interception, and LaDainian Tomlinson said in commenting about that that he quit on the team. We know Jason Garrett and Jerry Jones usually remain mum on these types of things, and they probably won't do any team discipline for this. Was this just a bad night in one of the first games Zeke and even Dak had to deal with a game like that, or should the Cowboys be a little worried that this can or already is a problem? I don't think it's a big deal. I really don't. Like, what are we saying? When we're ripping Ezekiel Elliott up and down for not, you know, chasing after an interception, which he's not going to make a play on that ball, whatever. I mean, it's it's just performance art at that point for us, right? We just wanted him to appease us by running to, running again to uh, Chris Harris at that point, I guess. Uh, what are we saying? Are we saying Ezekiel Elliott doesn't play hard? I mean, if you go back and look at the film of a guy who, uh, you know, touched the ball, I think, 384 times or whatever last year, I think he plays hard. I think, uh, I mean, it'd be insane to question his effort on a play-to-play basis. So what are we really talking about? Like, I know that some people are saying that the Cowboys need to punish him. And why? What are we we even talking about? Like, this is crazy to me. Like, does Jason Garrett need to sit down and say, hey, 
you can't do that. Like you need to run after it. Who knows? Maybe somebody punches out the ball and you can fall, you know, fall to fumble or whatever. Yeah, you do. But this, this is just becoming one of these things that's entirely overblown. It's, I'm shocked at where we've come to with this story all week. It's it's kind of weird to me. It, you know, we're we're kind of questioning Ezekiel Elliott's hustle and his effort after what he's done in his NFL career. There's a lot of reasons to dislike Ezekiel Elliott right now, but I don't think this is one of them. I think this is just the everything with the Cowboys drama. Everything gets overblown because it's the Cowboys, and it's really not a big deal. I I I, I have nothing. I, it just doesn't. The story is just weird to me how it's kind of spiraled all week. And honestly, I think that Jerry Jones and Jason Garrett would probably prefer that on a play like that, Zeke just really lays down on the field and doesn't risk right. pulling a Terrell hamstring Davis. or Terrell, anything. Chasing I, the example I'd use is Terrell Davis. Terrell Davis basically ended his career chasing down an interception. He was, he was against the Jets in 99. I think Brian Greasy threw an interception. Terrell Davis is chasing it. His offensive tackle, Matt Lepsis, dies to make a tackle like he should. And Terrell Davis' knee gets blown out. And he was never the same guy. He literally never had another thousand-yard season. Do Denver Broncos are Denver Broncos applauding that Terrell Davis, a Hall of Fame player, was chasing an interception that play? Probably not. They probably wish he wouldn't have. So, I don't know. I, I just it, the, the whole story's weird to me that this has just become this big deal. Sticking with the Broncos, switching to the AFC West, out of the defense, not losing stride under new coordinator Joe Woods, the offense getting some life under new coordinator Mike McCoy, or the job new head coach Vance Joseph has done overall. What has impressed you the most so far when it comes to the Denver Broncos getting off to a 2-0 and start? I think it has to be the offense and it has to be McCoy. He's always been a very good coordinator. Again, going back to the Ben McAdoo thing. Some guys just aren't cut out to be head coaches. Some guys are really, really good coordinators. Maybe Mike McCoy is that guy because he's always been good at devising an offense, and now he's he's done a fantastic job in maximizing Trevor Simeon's strengths as a quarterback, getting balls to the playmakers, Demarius Thomas, Emmanuel Sanders, C.J. Andrews, and letting these guys really do their thing. I, I, I've i just been impressed. I mean, Trevor Simeon leads the NFL in passing touchdowns right now. Like that, I mean, Trevor Simeon, it's, it's pretty impressive. If they can play offense close, to, I don't think this is going to you know sustain all year. I don't think there's an offensive juggernaut or anything. But if they can play an efficient, good offense, middle-of-the-road offense all year, the defense is unbelievable. We knew that. I mean, and, and the run defense has been totally fixed with Joe Woods. So, I... Uh, I've uh, just been really impressed with them. I think they're a very good team. Now, the, the problem with the Broncos is their schedule. The schedule is brutal. I mean, they 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 got they're very front loaded at home games. They have a stretch where I believe they play seven road games and then they came straight or something crazy like that. Maybe it's six and seven. So the schedule is going to beat them down a little bit. But this team is, I mean, from top to bottom, looks very good. I, I do think that McCoy has just made a huge difference, and and. They're kind of here to stay. It's just whether they can survive the schedule and playing a tough, basically a tough out every single week. Yeah, Broncos fans are definitely happy to have him back. And I think some people forget that he was there for a little while and, and did do very well as the offensive coordinator, maybe not as well as the coach for the Chargers. And I wanted to hit on them quickly, not so much for the 0-2 start. We know Phillip Rivers isn't going to be sending his kicker a Christmas card this year, but it's interesting in the NFL thus far to no surprise, many of the teams, almost all of them really that started off. Oh, and two 
don't have a quarterback in the Bears, the Niners, the Jets, the Browns, the Colts, typical names, unfortunately. You could say an honorable mention for the Bengals if you want to talk about Andy Dalton. Drew Brees is a surprise, but that defense has been awful, and we know Phillip Rivers had some typical, unfortunate Chargers luck. But in general, they go back to Los Angeles for their first game, and everyone in L.A. stayed home. And you've already written about... The Chargers relocation, one of the worst in modern sports history. The mayor of L.A. recently came out and didn't seem too thrilled himself, saying that they're happy to have them, but they would have just been happy with just one team. More fans flocked to the USC-Texas game at the Coliseum than combined Rams and Chargers. Is this going to change once the new stadium gets built in Inglewood, or will this be the norm for one or both of those teams? I don't think it changes a ton. I, I think that the Rams have a better chance just because they had some history there. They had at least a little bit of a head start, you know, and not that it was a good head start with how they played last season, but they're at least, when I try to figure out this mess, I, I think, well, at least the Rams have some kind of foothold in LA. The Chargers got nothing. The Chargers, nobody wanted the Chargers there. Nobody. It was amazing. I, as I said, I've written about this before. It's just crazy to me that every other team in in modern sports history, I couldn't tell you about if the Portsmouth Lions when they moved to Detroit. Detroit really opened them, welcomed them with open arms. But every modern relocation, the new city, you think about like Oilers going to Tennessee or whatever. Every city just treats this like, wow, we got a pro football team or a pro team of any kind. And they're just so excited, and it's just laying out the red carpet, open arms, and wow, we're a major league city. And the Chargers were the first team to relocate, and the city did not want them. The L.A. The LA market doesn't want the Chargers. They'd rather have more of a TV window than have the Chargers, you know, because the Chargers have to be on in the local market. They would rather have, hey, what's the game of the week, Packers-Seahawks? We'd rather watch that than the Chargers. And that's it's hard when you're the... The Chargers, who and no fans in LA. I, I was, I grew up in Southern California. I, I know the market a little bit. There are no Chargers fans in LA, they're, and there there's no Chargers fans in San Diego anymore either because they turned their back on them. So, I I don't know where I don't know how the Chargers get any momentum. I don't know how they become a big deal in that market. You know, with the new stadium, well, that's going to be nice, and people are going to want to go see it. But I, I just don't see anybody really getting behind the Chargers now. The, the caveat is LA loves a winner. And if, if the Chargers just somehow, you know, become a great team winning 13 games or something like that, that, yeah, I guess that's how you, you become a big deal in LA. But I don't see that happening really. The teams never won a Super Bowl, So I, I don't know. I, I just, I, I, as I sit here today, I just have a hard time believing the Chargers are in LA 20 years from now. I just, there's just no, I just don't see them really penetrating this market and being a big deal. I, I, I think they're just always going to be number two. They're always going to, to, to struggle to get any fans. They're, they're just a nothing entity in Los Angeles. And I think this is just a terrible business decision by the Chargers and the NFL. A team owner moved his team in the middle of the night, and this is probably worse than that. So it's yeah, 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 because Indianapolis wanted the Colts. Indianapolis right. was like, wow, we got the Colts. L.A. is like, who? Who are you? Oh, another team? Nah, we don't really want 
It's going to be interesting, especially when the franchise quarterback that former San Diego fans have known so well ends up retiring and we miss out mm-hmm. on some epic temper tantrums that he's given us throughout the years <laughs> on the sidelines. A couple of quick hitters uh, for some of the best and worst in your power rankings for this week. I'm interested to know in general, and this could be a quick answer just off the cuff for this sure. specific question. Do you think Andrew Luck should play again this season? And what team should suck for luck or suck for the best quarterback coming out of college who's now 0-2 and seemingly in disarray for the rest of the year? I think Andrew Luck should play when he's healthy. I mean, he's he, he, you know, that's how it works. When you're healthy, you play. And I, I wouldn't play him before he's not before he's fully healthy, though. <laughs> Make sure he's right. And the team I think the Jets. The Jets need some hope. The Jets the Jets need to go one and fifteen. Not all in sixteen, because everybody remembers all in sixteen. Nobody remembers one and fifteen. They need to go one and fifteen, get get Josh Rosen, get Sam Darnold. Whoever whoever the number one guy is gonna be, they need something to to sell their fans as there's a better day coming. We got this guy. And they better be careful because Josh McCown could go out there and have the nerve to make a couple comebacks and win them a couple games, and then they're still <laughs> hey, not. I'll going tell to you. I'll tell you something. I'll tell you something. The Miami Dolphins come. They they dealt with the hurricane stuff. They're on the road all last week. They go straight to New York, and then they go straight to London next week. Right. This is a tough spot for the Dolphins. Really tough. Don't don't pick the Dolphins in your survivor pool. Let's put it out. Two teams squeaking in at 10-9 and were the Panthers and Seahawks, who both won last week despite ugly offensive games. Do either of these teams reach 500 this season? I think so. I mean, I think think they're both good teams that are just trying to figure things out, and they usually do. I mean, I think... I, I think Seattle, I have a hard time believing this is just going to be Seattle's offense all season, not, you know, getting anything going, not even getting the 300 yards in games, which they haven't done yet. I think that Seattle's fine. I think they're going to win the West. The is going to win the West. <laughs> it's a, it's a, looking like a bad division right now. And the Panthers are a little tougher to, to get a hold of because, you know, Christian McCaffrey really hasn't done anything yet, but is that just figuring out what he does well, like putting him in a position to succeed? I don't know. I'll say about the two, I think Seattle's got much better chance to finish 500 just because of the division they play. But uh, I think Seattle should be fine, and to an extent, I think the Panthers are going to be fine, too. That's why I kept them so high in the rankings. Another 2-4 of certs in the AFC West. Are the Oakland Raiders and the Kansas City Chiefs for real? And if we can't answer that quite yet, what will they have to do to become that later in the season? I think they both are. I, I, I was really impressed, and not enough people talk about it, with the Raiders going to Tennessee and winning. I think Tennessee's a very, very good football team, and I think Tennessee showed it last week. That's who Tennessee is. They're when they pounded the Jaguars, and for the Raiders to go into Tennessee and basically control that whole game and win, I was like, wow, the, the Raiders are better than they were last year. Now, they might not have the same record as last year, because that's tough to do, but I think the Raiders are for real. And then, how can you not think the Chiefs are for real? They're they they've just I mean if we're in the NCAA tournament selection committee and we're looking at quality wins, they have the best quality win in the NFL. I mean the going on the road and beating the Patriots is gonna stand up as the best win in the NFL all season, I think. I it's it's really impressive what they've done. Kareem Hunt adds a different dimension. Uh, you could make an argument I, I didn't in my power rankings, but you can make an argument if you do your power rankings a certain way and you're just talking about what a team has done through two weeks. 
you can make an argument that the top three teams in the NFL are all from the same division. You can say the the Broncos, Chiefs, and Raiders in some order should be one, two, three in any power rankings. And I can't argue too much with you. That's how good that division's been. That's how good that division's going to be at. To quickly follow up with that, are you leaning toward us seeing at least two teams from that division heading into the playoffs once they roll around? It's tough because the, the schedules are so tough. I mean, I think, I'll say this, I think that, that easily two of the six best teams in the AFC are in that division. I just don't know if they can manage these schedules because this year the AFC West puts the NFC East, which we all know is pretty deep. The good teams are going to be tough outs there. So I, the AFC West is going to have a tough time just winning enough games because they play each other, too. And, and San Diego ain't well in Los Angeles. I'm sorry. The Chargers aren't bad either. So they're not an easy out. I, it, like, uh, you know, the, the best example is to go look at the Broncos, go look at their schedule, and try to find 10 wins. I mean, it's, it's going to be that's – the, that's the challenge for the AFC West. Not that they're not good enough, that they're going to have to play each other and they're going to knock each other off. And you might end up at the end of the year with – you know, the Broncos having nine wins, but somebody like the Houston Texans having 10 because they played a much easier schedule. Pittsburgh made it to number one this week, and they haven't really wowed us offensively as a whole in either game, though they are 2-0. and What have they done so far that you've seen that earned them that spot for this past week? Yeah, I just think their defense was really, really good. I don't think, you know, we all talk about their offense. Their offense is going to be fine. If you're worried about Pittsburgh's offense, I, I think that you're just <laughs> you're a doomsday say, sayer because this offense is going to be incredible. Once Le'Veon gets going, they get some rhythm. There's there's no weakness on this offense. It's going to be one of the best in football. And then you look at the other side, they say, wow, they, they really hit on the T.J. Watt pick. They can really rush a passer. This is a, a defense that it's it's good at every level. They do a lot of things well. And if their defense is... Even fringe top ten, well, what's the weakness then? I, I, I think this this Pittsburgh team is going to, and they've they've won. They, they yeah, they haven't played a tough schedule yet, and they haven't really blown the doors off anybody. But they're two and zero. They're going to be better as the season goes on. As Le'Veon Bell gets more into the groove and in his rhythm, I think this Pittsburgh team is really really good. But to be honest, if I'm really truly being honest, who do I think is the best team in football? It's the New England Patriots. I think I think they had a bad week. I think they had one bad week to start the season, and I think we're going to be sitting here in January saying, "Yeah, bet the Patriots are here again. They're thirteen and three. They won an easy division. They're number one seed, and they're probably going to win another Super Bowl." <laughs> but you can't justify putting the Patriots number one ahead of the Chiefs now, to, for an example. So they are where they are in the power rankings. But if I had to pick who's the best team in football, I'd still pick New England. Well, if Pittsburgh does have anything, they had some two touchdown celebrations that made the NFL have to decide whether the receivers were potentially playing Yahtzee or backgammon (laughs) as it was released to see if they would get fined when really it was probably just street dice that they've probably actually played before as well. So if anything, they have that so far heading into week three. The last one for you, what team or teams or player or players will you be watching most closely these next couple weeks just to see how they might improve or maybe how they might even decline i think the one that really sticks out to me when you're when you're saying that is russell wilson because we're all sitting here talking about how bad the seahawks offensive line is and it is it's bad but russell wilson is supposed to be and he is i love russell wilson he he's supposed to be one of the top you know, whatever, five, six, seven, wherever you have them ranked quarterbacks. 
and he's been bad so far. There's been nothing in that Seattle offense that's done anything worth note. They they scored one touchdown in two games uh, against teams that. And there are, you look at the Packers, you say, well, the Packers played really well against the Seahawks. Well, Packers got torched by the Falcons. And you look at the, you know, you look at the, the, the 49ers and you say, well, 49ers played the Seahawks great. Well, in their other game, the 49ers didn't play that well against the Panthers. So the one constant here is that the Seahawks are struggling badly. They, I believe they're averaging about 240 yards a game. And, and Russell Wilson has to take some blame for that. He hasn't made much happen. I know the line stinks. I know that they're trying to figure out the running back situation. I know there's a lot of things going on, but I want to see can Russell Wilson just get out of this slump he's in and and be the you know I mean people are picking him for MVP and I don't think that was crazy. I think Russell Wilson is very very good, but he hasn't played like that yet. So I think of all the players because if Russell Wilson hits that stride that he usually does and he's playing like one of the top five quarterbacks in football, well, we, we see Seattle defense is going to be there again. And then if the offense comes around too, then all of a sudden we're a Super Bowl contender again. So I think that, that of all the, the players who could really take off and change the outlook of the NFL season, I think it's Russell Wilson. I, I really want to see him just play better, just play better, get, get this, kind of put the Seahawks on his back and carry the offense a little bit because it's been really, really bad so far. Uh, so it's it's Russ. I want to see what he does next few weeks. Here. Well, Frank, thanks again for a couple minutes catching us up on all the main storylines from week two and what we can look forward to as the season goes on. As we know, nobody circles the wagons quite like the National Football League. So they'll keep you busy and continued success with what you're up to on Shutdown Corner. Really enjoy reading all your stuff, and I'll attach that to my show notes as well. Hopefully we can talk again down the road, make this uh, something that we might do on a year-to-year basis. But again, thanks again for dropping by. I really appreciate it. Absolutely appreciate it. Thanks again to Frank Schwab for jumping on the show. We'll now jump into a brand new segment called The Toll Booth with Donnie Wrightside. Donnie is a professional handicapper who knows a thing or two about the lines of the sports world and will be joining the bridge for a weekly segment to help us get on the right side of those lines based on his years of numbers, strategy, and overall knowledge of the market. Each week, Donnie will offer some of his best bets to correspond with the bridge fade of the week where listeners are urged to completely go in the opposite direction of myself since my own wallet will be opened and I usually have no luck at all in finding any success. If you don't believe in my misfortune, I'm already 0-2 for my best bets of this NFL season. For the upcoming weekend with the line set as of Thursday night, the bridge fade of the week is the Atlanta Falcons giving three on the road against the Detroit Lions. Now to someone who actually knows what he's doing, you can find Donnie at DonnieRightSide.com and at SportsBookReview.com and also follow him on Twitter. He's at RightSideVP, that's R-I-G-H-T-S-I-D-E-V-P. And remember, this segment is for entertainment purposes only. Without further ado, the debut of this week's edition of The Toll Booth with Donnie Wrightside. Has anybody got a dime? Somebody's got to go back and get a shitload of dimes.
Hey folks, Donnie Wrightside here from DonnieWrightside.com and SportsbookReview.com coming to you with an NFL and NCAA two-pack here on the bridge. We're going to call it our toll booth winners of the weekend. It's pretty expensive to cross the GW bridge, so hopefully we can put a little bit of money in your pocket. Let's start with college football, 9:23, 7 p.m. Eastern time on Saturday night, rotation 391-392. San Diego State's going to travel to play Air Force here, opening line at four and a half currently as we're filming this now sitting at three and a half we're going to take the home team here with the air force falcons to go over the san diego state aztecs reason being here a couple key bits of information that we're going to look forward to we all know how good san diego state has been over the past couple weeks coming up with nice wins against arizona state and also stanford both outright victors getting the points there i think there's going to be a little bit of a letdown spot here as they travel up to play air force air force opened the season with an easy victory 62 to nothing over v VMI as 34 and a half point favorites also battled Michigan last weekend a 29-13 loss but got the all-important cover of plus 23 heading to the big house now coming home to start some conference play I'm going to lean on Air Force here to get the job done at home again we're not asking for them to win the football game I think they can keep it close two teams that like to put the ball on the ground keep the ball on the ground and also play good defense we'll take the three and a half points so we're going to lean on the Air Force Falcons here getting three and a half next up we'll go to the NFL on Sunday, 1 p.m. kickoff, rotation 465-466, Pittsburgh and Chicago sitting now. We're going to take a total side wager as opposed to the side. Opened up at 46 points, now sitting at 44. We're going to lean on the Pittsburgh Steelers and the Chicago Bears to go over the total. First two weeks, not impressive from either ball club. Pittsburgh opening up with Cleveland, a 21-18 final. Then played Minnesota, tough defense, a 26-9 final. Even looking at the Bears, not that impressive versus Atlanta, 23-7. And Tampa Bay 29 to 7. A lot of teams coming out sloppily to open the NFL season by week three. You know pretty much what these teams would be. I think Pittsburgh's going to open it up a little bit on offense. I think there's value there in 44 points. So in college football, we're going to go with taking the Air Force Falcons plus three and a half. Also going to lean in NFL wager action, Pittsburgh and Chicago over the total of 44. Once again, this is Donnie Wrightside here from DonnieWrightside.com and SportsbookReview.com for the bridge. Hopefully, we can pay that toll money for you, folks. Take care. Left side! Strong side! Left side! Strong side! Left side! Strong side! Left side! We'll close out the show with America's fastest growing sports segment called Good Try, Good Effort. Here we'll briefly mention some of the instances from throughout the week when a team or a player or a coach meant well, but didn't quite meet those expectations. First up, good try, good effort to the Georgia State University football team. The Panthers had the joy of traveling to Happy Valley to play Penn State University in their second game of the season this past Saturday, meaning the school itself wouldn't make any money from the Nittany Lions because they were on the road, and that the school most likely wouldn't have a chance in winning the game since Penn State is a little bit better than the competition found in the Sun Belt Conference. The latter certainly proved to be the case as Penn State dominated the game and led 56 to nothing near the end of it. 
Playing for an ounce of pride, Georgia State lined up for a 31-yard field goal attempt with 11 seconds remaining in the contest to try to at least end the shutout. The kick went up, the kick was good, but whistles quickly blew because Penn State head coach James Franklin called a timeout right before the kick was snapped. Essentially, Franklin iced the Georgia State kicker like it was overtime in the Big Ten championship game instead of what basically is an early throwaway game before conference play starts. All to preserve a shutout. After the timeouts, the second kick was then missed quite badly, and Franklin clapped with glee on the sidelines with players and coaches. One week after Franklin threw shade after beating Pittsburgh, saying they celebrated their win over Penn State last year like it was their Super Bowl, and that Penn State beating them this year was just another game, just like it was beating Akron the week before. Franklin remained snide in his post-game conference after the Georgia State game and that he was not icing the kicker, saying, quote, Really, that had nothing to do with it. We don't have a fourth-team field goal block, so we called timeout to get the second-team field goal block in there. End quote. On Tuesday, Franklin again addressed the issue, saying, quote, We had mostly our fourth-team defense, some threes, on the field. I've been doing this 23 years. We've never worked a fourth-team field goal block. I'm on the headset and our defensive coaches are talking about how those guys won't even know how to line up. I'm shaking my head and the recommendation was to get the second team in there. I call the timeout and we are able to get the second team on the field and from that point on, we're going to block the kick. End quote. In real life, the fourth team or whatever team was out there to defend the kick was already lined up more than fine before the timeout was called. I think most defensive football players can figure out how to line up for a field goal block and to, you know, put a hand up once the kick goes up. Franklin was also seen on camera communicating to no one while he power walked down the sideline to make sure he got to the referee to call the timeouts before the kick. He added that allowing the field goal attempt with the incorrect personnel on the field would run counter to a program core value to always compete regardless of the circumstances. How nice. To be honest, it was just a dick move, and Franklin could have easily just admitted that. Since he's been very vocal so far this season, even though Penn State has played no one. But if you don't believe me in that mini rant, perhaps take a listen to what Mike Francesa had to say on his show about it when he found out of James Franklin's coaching decision. That is an absolute disgrace. And this stooge tried to alibi around it. And these fans who are happy now that they're winning 56-0 and could give a damn what they did to Georgia State, sit there and make excuses for them. Didn't have a kick block team. He's got to try and block a kick at 56-0. He's a horse's ass for doing that. That's a quote. 
I had to do, it had to do with, we had our fourth team on the field. We didn't have a four-team field goal block. What the heck do you need to block it for? Let the ball go through the uprights. You jerk. So we call timeout to get the second team field goal block in there. What a bunch of garbage that is. He sells you that, he'll sell you anything. The guy iced him, plain and simple, because he wanted a shutout. And lastly, good try, good efforts to Major League Baseball home run records. On Tuesday night, Alex Gordon hit a home run for the Kansas City Royals, which was the 5,694th home run of the 2017 season, breaking the record for most home runs in a season that had stood since 2000. By season's end, we'll most likely see the 30 teams combined to surpass 6,000 home runs and that 15 players or so will hit at least 40 home runs. On the contrary, for the 12th season in a row, however, we'll also see a record number of strikeouts, which will surpass 40,000 this season for the first time in history. For example, Yankees slugger Aaron Judge is four home runs away as of this recording from tying Mark McGuire's rookie record for home runs with 49 that he set in 1987, but he'll also set the rookie record for most strikeouts by season's end. There's also been 110 players to hit at least 20 home runs this season, something which will also most likely be broken because there's a handful of players that are already at 19. Prior to this season, only in 1999 and 2000 had more than 100 players reached 20 home runs with 103 and 102 respectively. The interesting part of this record is that while we'll see the most home runs for a season in MLB history, the run totals for teams haven't gone up. Baseball has now become a boom or bust league, and whether it's more steroid use that no one's figured out yet, juiced baseball, stronger players, faster pitches, whatever it might be, these numbers are crazy. And unfortunately, the viewership and attendance numbers don't quite match up to that craziness. That's going to do it for The Bridge. You can listen to this show and all previous shows over on my website at londonbridge.com. That's L-U-N-D-I-N-B-R-I-D-G-E. You can also follow me on Twitter under that same handle, at LondonBridge. You can find The Bridge on iTunes by searching for The Bridge Sports Podcast. There you'll find the newest episodes of The Bridge every Thursday night. And also be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the show. You can also find The Bridge on Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and on the TuneIn app on Wednesdays at 7 Eastern Time by searching for Sports Radio America. In the next installment of The Bridge, we'll dive into some Major League Baseball, dabble in the NBA, circle the wagons of the National Football League, and whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve. On The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports.